Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Roland Bessette discusses his biography, Mario Lanza, Tenor in Exile. Roland Bessette, author of Mario Lanza, Tenor in Exile. When do you remember first hearing the voice of Mario Lanza? It would be difficult for me, to, for me to pinpoint that. I was a young child, certainly. My father listened to Lanza a lot. It all blurs together. I know that it was background in my house quite often. But I would guess that uh, the first time I heard Lanza was when I was nine. What did it mean to you? At the time, I uh, didn't know quite what to think. And then, of course, when Elvis Presley came on the scene, it seemed to me anachronistic to, for my father to be listening to this. But um, when I grew older, left the house, uh, developed an interest in opera, I found myself returning to Lanza from time to time as I developed other tenor, uh, an interest in other tenors. Um, and looking back to when I was a child, and even today, I, I still regard the voice as unique. I think I regarded it as unique, a unique uh, instrument when I was a child. Didn't know what an instrument was particularly, but uh, it never left, really. When did you decide you wanted to write a book about him? I probably, well, first of all, I wanted to write a book about something. Um, and I always said when the last daughter left for college, it would, the house would be quiet enough and I'd finally get around to it. It happened. And uh, the person I thought I was going to write a book about actually was Ernest Hemingway. But I decided there was so much on that biographical pile, there was no sense in adding another log. Lonzo was uh, another interest I had, and I didn't feel that biographically he'd ever really been uh, touched. There were several books out there on him, but they didn't explain the kind of career, the kind of life, the kind of legacy that Lonzo had. So it was probably about 1990 I began to think seriously about the project. So how'd you go about writing it? Well, the first thing, several years later, um, I began some research, um, acquired a huge collection of uh, clippings, scrapbook-type stuff from someone in England, um, did get some things from people in the United States, was looking around, went to California to the L.A. Superior Court, looked at the estate file, and then began to interview people, um, his former managers, lawyers, things of that sort. I probably did that from 92 to 94. Put it all in a format I could understand by category, by year, by film, developed a massive timeline, and then finally sat down to write the book. I believe it was in 94. Now, for people who don't know him or are too young to remember, who was he? Well, Mario Alonza burst out of the musical scene really in the late 1940s. And even today, it seems to, uh, to most that he just came from nowhere. He was born on 6th and Christian in South Philadelphia, 636 Christian to be exact, and did burst like a meteor onto the Hollywood scene with his first three films, The Midnight Kiss, Toast of New Orleans, and then, of course, the uh, zenith of his career, The Great Caruso. Um, he was considered, to the operatic world, something quite, you know, uh, with, with uh, the promise being quite bright, but the movie th thing overtook that, and it wasn't long before the career disintegrated. Um, 
and became a disappointment to both those who liked his movies and those who expected him to become the next great operatic tenor in this country. When did he become a singer? When did he start singing? He started singing as a child. I mean, he was always interested in opera. There's the perhaps apocryphal tale of him listening to Vesta the Juba 27 times when he was four or five years old. His father did listen to operatic records, the 78th of the time. Lanza uh, had a rich uh, knowledge of the singers um, prior to his ascendancy to any kind of fame. He began to take lessons at about the age of 15 in Philadelphia, appeared in many small venues in uh, Pennsylvania as he developed Shippensburg, uh, uh, later on, earlier Allentown, places like that. Uh, even at the age, by the age of 19, he was regarded as, as a significant talent in terms of potential. Was discovered by Serge Kusevitsky, took him to the Berkshires, the Tanglewood Festival, uh, reviewed by Noel Strauss of the New York Times, who was a prominent critic of his day, who called him uh, the equal to the best tenors of his day. When he came onto the scene in Hollywood, all of that seemed to have been forgotten, but there was a legitimate foundation to what Lanza had done, and many legitimate people in the industry, in the operatic world, felt this was a talent to be reckoned with. And you write about uh, Kusevetsky in 1942 at the Berkshire Mu Music Festival, and you say Kusevetsky's favorites that season were Lanza and an intense young composer-conductor named Leonard Bernstein. Mario approached training as he always had. If someone walked him through a piece, he produced spectacular results, but if you handed him a score to digest in time for morning rehearsal, the result was a blank stare and an orchestra with little to do. So he wasn't musically uh, trained? I note that, you know, Kusevitsky went to his grave always feeling that in Lanza <clears throat> he had discovered one of the great voices of the century, even though he perhaps existed in a more legitimate world than Lanza ever entered. With regard to uh, Lanza's musical ability, no, Lanza could identify notes. I've talked to many musicians who played on his sessions. He could identify a particular note, but he could not sight read and integrate the score. The way to teach Mario Lanza to sing a song was to play it for him. And I've got tapes at home of his rehearsals where someone takes him through it with a piano. And everyone I did talk to said once it was there, the notes, the timing, the cues, he was, that was it. Of course, now he wouldn't change, one of the problems with that was that's the way he would always sing it, too. Um, but he, he could not sight read. Uh, you tell a story about how he, uh, he was singing a song and one of his teachers said, oh, well, you're, you learned it from the such-and-such -such recording. Correct, from the Julie recording. Because you made all the same mistakes he Correct. Made. That was That was one of the... Uh, I think in his early career, he tended to emulate the Julie recordings he heard. He tended sometimes to revert to some of the Caruso recordings he heard, but his interpretations were always unique. As his career went along, it became strictly the Mario Lanza version. But in the early days, yes, he, uh, that was Madame Butterfly, and he had heard a Julie recording, and he was doing the same thing Julie did wrong. Did he ever improve as a singer? Oh, I think he did. I think, unfortunately, toward the end of his life, uh, the voice, the instrument, wasn't what it had been. If you go to the last two or three years of his life, um, you're not going to find him reaching for a high B flat very often. You're not going to find a high C there. You're going to find in a lot of the recordings, the outtakes, that, there's a, that the upper range is, is, is a bit frazzled. But I think he knew more about how to sing as he grew older. Um, some of the things he did in the last three years, um, are not necessarily complex musical pieces, but they are certainly songs he sang with great conviction, knowing full well how to sing them. That wasn't always true earlier in the career. Sometimes he would just go for the big finish. Um, 
which didn't always fit. Let's back up a little bit and talk about his parents. You talked about him growing up in South Philadelphia, and you talk a lot in the book about his mother. Can you tell me something about his mother and his relationship with her? Well, Mary, Maria Cacozza had emigrated to Italy as a child. Her father, Salvatore Lanza, was an industrious, thrifty immigrant, immigrant himself who um, operated a grocery store at 636 Christian. At the age of 15 and a half, <clears throat> she married Tony Cacozza who was a disabled veteran of World War I. Tony was not an effective man. He never worked. Um, I think in today's society, we would call it a, po a post-traumatic stress disorder type situation or what they call shell shock in his time. He was nervous, didn't drive, didn't fly. A nice man, an affable man, but not the head of his household. Mary was very much the head of that household. Um, and I think because of perhaps the satisfaction with the marriage, um, lived, as she put it many times, through Mario, her son. What kind of a mother was she? I think she demanded great loyalty from Mario. Um, I think she caused great conflict in Mario because of the demands for loyalty and the suspicion about what others, loyalty to others might mean. Um, she certainly caused problems in his marriage with regard to who was the person who knew Mario best, who was the one he really loved, I talked to Al Teitelbaum, Mario's last manager, who said that Mario would drop by and have to buy a bigger fur for his mother than he was buying for Betty because, as he put it, he had to keep peace in the household. And that was the kind of conflict that was always ongoing. You also say in here that uh, when Freddie, Mario's birth name, um, initiated fistfights, his mother insisted that the other boys started the affair and thus deserved a beating. When he was caught shoplifting candy from a neighborhood store, it was a mistake. His friends, most of them bad influences, were the culprits. When he was accused of taking improper liberties with girls, it was because they were tramps bent on amorous adventures with her irresistible son. Was he spoiled all through his life? He was spoiled all through his life, and that was an attitude that Mary carried right into uh, the time beyond his death. It was the managers that caused it, stole from him and caused his career to go bad. It was Hollywood that misunderstood him. It was Betty that caused him to drink. Mario never did anything wrong, according to his mother. Did he ever have anybody who, was, uh, who disciplined him? No. Uh, the closest he came to discipline was probably the armed forces. But by virtue of his voice, he uh, managed to evade most of that. Sam Weiler, his first manager, certainly attempted uh, to uh, perform as a father figure. But that relationship, of course, fell apart. Uh, Sam saying, I, you know, life's too short. I don't need this sort of thing. And when the relationship broke up in a very acrimonious state, Al Teitelbaum was the next manager in his life who I think tried his best with Mario. At that point, there was a, a well-established pattern in terms of how Mario was regarded in Hollywood. Uh, but there was no one who ever disciplined Mario, no one he ever listened to um, consistently. That, that just didn't occur. Terry Robinson was a good friend of Mario's, um, and he will certainly um, lay claim to having advised him many times, but the fact is Mario didn't listen to people. There are, as a group of people who hold Mario Lanza in very high regard, I mean, almost saintly status you refer to in the book, why is that? I hold Mario in very high regard myself. A lot of operatic singers that I've spoken with hold Mario in very high regard. I think he deserves to be held in high regard with regard to his voice. There are others out there, Lanza cultists, I call them, 
who feel that he should be held in high regard for everything, as that Pope John Paul must be ready to make this man a saint tomorrow. Um, that's simply not the case. I think the voice is to be admired, but like anyone else, he was a man. Um, he made mistakes. He had faults. We can go to Frank Sinatra. We can go to Elvis Presley. There isn't a man that's been born yet that doesn't make mistakes and like doesn't have faults, but there are those who indicate that anything negative about Mario is a lie. Um, and I have confronted some of that, yes. But by and large, I find people admire the voice, the legacy. And that is in the book what I tried to really wrestle with. Why did this career go the way it did? And why is the legacy so considerable 40 years after his death, in spite of a very brief career, actually? Why is it? Well, I think the talent was unique. He, his like hadn't come along before. Who are you going to confirm, compare him with? Nelson Eddy, in terms of the movie tenors. Um, no one's come along to replace them. You can say that the genre, the musical, pretty much phased out even before he died, um, so that there isn't any opportunity for anyone to replace him. I guess they're now touting Bocelli. Andrea Bocelli is, is uh, the new Lanza-type uh, figure, a pop crossover. But Lanza was unique, and the talent, the talent was significant. Although you'll find opera files who will discount Lanza, they'll say they didn't like the way he approached things. He only sang the two operas in New Orleans. Um, you'll, when you talk to singers, they're in awe. Um, through this book, a lot of strange things have happened to me. I got a call at my home one Sunday from a group of uh, singers from Palermo. They happened to be in Gross Point Park, Michigan, where I live. One of them was reading the book, and he got to the, the, uh, the back cover and noticed, my God, the author lives in Gross Point Park, and here we are auditioning with the Michigan Opera Theater. They came to my home. I played them a lot of tapes of Lanza that aren't commercially available, and they were all in awe, as they put it, of that ringing quality to his voice, the, how he instilled emotion into his singing. Um, so I, I think the legacy uh, is well-deserved uh, on the basis of sheer talent. But he never became what's considered a serious opera singer. No, he didn't. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Well, why is that? Well, I think that after, he certainly was headed that way through the 40s. He was with Columbia artists, with legitimate singers, Francis Yen and George London, touring the Bel Canto Trio. As I, I spoke with uh, Julius Rudell of the Met, who indicated, as he indicated, those two people were legitimate talents. Mario belonged there. He didn't, he, what, they weren't pulling him along. He was earning good reviews. Got a wonderful review from Claudia Cassidy, who wound up later on being the great friend of Maria Callas. Uh, and once he got into Hollywood, I think other things intersected. His life began to fall apart in many ways. Um, he, so he talked about going into the opera. He was, re uh, there were rehearsals, there was some discussion of him doing Andrea Chenier with Renata Tabaldi in San Francisco. He wound up not doing that role. Um, in fact, it was replaced by Mario Delmonico. Then there, after that, there was always the annual talk of going into opera, but it never happened. I don't think that Mario ever after that point had consistent period where he was in sufficient spirits to learn and to be dependable. Um, at the end of his life, there was talk about him doing Tosca, uh, Cavaradossi and Tosca at the, at the Rome Opera House. Um, it was a nice thought. I mean, all the opera managers in the world would love to have given it a try. But I think as the years went by, it became uh, futility. Did he have stage fright? He suffered from stage fright. I maintain that starting in 51, he starts to crack on high B flat and high C. Not consistently, but it's there on his recordings. That really caused him tremendous fear. 
If you take him from, from the concert tour in 1950, he does not appear on stage live again until um, he's in London, England in 1957. Six years went by before he would appear again. Um, and I maintain that the, he was always nervous. I, I talked to Francis Yend, who would appear to the, uh, the, the Bel Canto Trio, and she said that before the performances, he was always terrified. And when it came to cueing him, she said, I, pra I practically had to punch him to, you know, to get him to do it. She said, but, but she did admit it was a thrilling voice, and it was you know, quite an experience singing with him. But uh, the stage fright was there. For whatever reason, starting in 57 through 58, he managed to make uh, concert appearances. But there was a six-year gap where that didn't occur. You said he was very comfortable in the recording studio. Yes, he was. It seemed that in a recording studio he could recover a flub, although if you look at his uh, recording log, he seldom goes to a second take. Now, a first take is a you know, misleading term. It is a lot that went into doing the first take. But when he got it all together and they went into a first take generally, that's the recording they used. Um, as, as his career went by, there were some, there were a couple of examples where he went to a third, fourth, fifth, sixth take, but not very often. Um, he just felt more comfortable in a recording studio. Although I would note, looking at his recording log again, it wasn't so easy to get him into a recording studio. How well did his records sell? Oh, his records, they were phenomenal in this time. If you go to 1951, he earned well over a million dollars that year. Um, translated to today's money, that's probably in the realm of 20, 25 million. I know there's some entertainers who earn more than that today, but there's been an exponential increase with uh, the various venues that these people go into. Uh, no one sold records like Lanza did during his time. He remains, in fact, the best-selling catalog artist with RCA. When was he at his peak as a recording artist? Well, I think his best recordings, honestly, were done on May 5, 1949 at the Manhattan Center in New York. Those were his first recordings for RCA. He recorded four songs that day. Um, he continued, he did some magnificent things through the, uh, 1950, 51, and then sporadically after that, there were some magnificent recordings. Even the last year of his life, some of the recordings are magnificent, but certainly the peak is 49 through 50. When was he at his peak as a star? 1950-51, with the great Caruso. What would a Mario Lanza appearance have been like at the time? In terms of a public appearance? Mm -hmm. Oh, it was every bit the precursor to Madonna, the Beatles, Elvis, uh, women tore at his clothing. Uh, he had a heavy, actually his fans were heavily female. Um, and his time, and I find it interesting that today, as I deal with many of his fans, it's heavily male. I don't know, just, you know, I've never given a lot of thought to what that's all about, but um, very exciting. Uh, he was the darling of the Bobby Soxers of his day. A jukebox favorite. Kind of hard to, to think about that today, but, that's, but he was that. What kind of songs did he sing? Sang everything. Sang pop songs, sang opera, sang Neapolitan songs, Broadway, the American Songbook. And he did it all well. I think that's something about Lanza that really has to be reckoned with. I mean, certainly Pavarotti uh, made a film called Yes, Georgia, which I'm sure even he wants to forget about. But he hasn't been real successful in crossing over. Um, probably of the three uh, tenors, uh, Carreras has probably had more success crossing over. No one like Lanza in terms of all of those mediums. Even, you know, some uh, Latin songs. Granada, certainly, I think Lanza's version is the quintessential version from which all others uh, developed their interpretations. But uh, he sang just about anything you could think of, including hymns, Christmas carols, very well. 
You quote uh, Arturo Toscanini in here as saying, Lanzas is the greatest voice of the 20th century. First of all, who's Arturo Toscanini? Well, Arturo uh, Toscanini is, uh, of course, the, the dean of conductors um, during this century, a man who worked with everyone from Caruso to Gili to Bjorling. The remark, I will admit, is somewhat controversial. It's related through Constantine Kalinikos, who conducted on many of Lanza's sessions, where, and uh, as it was explained to me, after Toscanini heard the first four recordings, particularly the Cagelina Manina that Lanza had done on May 5th, 49, that was the pronouncement he made. Now, Toscanini made that pronouncement a few times about singers. Marian Anderson is another one. And no one's been able to really trace it back. But it pops up, and um, I'm inclined to believe that it was probably uttered as Kalinikos uh, indicated it was. Is he still, Lanza still taken seriously among uh, classical musicians today? He's taken seriously among singers because they wonder how he did what he did. I mean, there, there was a myth in his time that this was not a valid instrument, that it was electronically jacked up, that he recorded his songs in small pieces and all that sort of thing. And, and that, that is, I think, in the book, thoroughly debunked. He's very much re, uh, held in high regard by many singers. I find, as an opera uh, attendee myself, that many opera files are just rejected. You mentioned his name and they scoff. Oh, Mario Lanza. And that's unfortunate because uh, the recordings are all we have to go by when it comes to any singer. And Lanza's recordings, his best recordings, will stand next to anything on certain uh, arias that anybody's done. You mentioned a name that pops up in the book occasionally in uh, regard to Mario Lanza, and that is Caruso, Enrico mm -hmm. Caruso. Who was he, and why does his name keep showing up? Well, certainly Caruso is the first significant tenor of the century by virtue of the fact I think he's the first tenor who, whose voice is portable through recordings. And he virtually put the phonographs manufactured by RCA in all of the homes around the world. He remained the standard for many, many years. Uh, when Lanza came along, they were looking for the next Caruso. And as I say in the book, had Caruso come along, they'd have said he was wanting. He wasn't the next Caruso either. So it became something of a myth, I think. Um, certainly there were some very good singers who I think are overlooked um, in favor of Caruso. For, I mean, Gili was hardly an inferior replacement to Caruso. Uh, UC Bjorling was hardly an inferior replacement to Caruso. Uh, Domingo and Pavarotti are hardly inferior replacements to Caruso. I know some people are probably listening to that right now saying, my God, that's a sacrilege. But Caruso was the tenor of his time. He had, there's a lot of mystique that goes with him because he was the first tenor to, whose voice was recorded and made popular. But when Lanza came along, that you had to confront and tackle that myth. And Lanza, of course, was touted as the next Caruso for a time. And his response to that was always, I'm the first Lanza. I'm not the next Caruso. But um, at other times, he would reckon with who Caruso was and how he stood up next to Caruso, all that sort of thing. Was there a moment at which Lanza was discovered? Oh, I think he, there were numerous moments when he was discovered. When he was training in Philadelphia with Irene Williams, she knew he was destined for big things. The Kusevitsky break is the big one. The next big one, of course, is the Hollywood Bowl on August, during August of 1947. That was a big break. What happened there? Well, at that point, he had earned very good reviews in Milwaukee and Chicago. Ida Coverman, who was Louis B. Mayer's secretary, had acetates of his voice. She played them for Louis B. Mayer. He was impressed. Lonzo was a handsome young man. So you mean that voice comes from that face? Coverman um, 
forced him into the Hollywood Bowl as a replacement for Ferruccio Talavini, who had made a big impression at the Met that year but canceled um, at a relatively short time period before the concert. Lonza went on before uh, Catherine Grayson, Louis B. Mayer, Joe Pasternak, Jesse Lasky, and if, I think there were something in the range of 3,800 people there, and it seems as though when I talked to folks, the, the, the 10,000 claimed to have been there. But in any event, Louis B. Mayer was there, and the Hollywood contract resulted. What happened next? Then the movie career. I mean, he still had some concert work to do. He returned with the Bel Canto Trio, but was a bit petulant about the idea that he was a movie star on his way up. Dropped out of the tour in Canada, uh, went to Hollywood, and of course made his first film, That Midnight Kiss. Was he always difficult to work with? Uh, I think he became, on, on That Midnight Kiss, he was not difficult to work with. He was eager to learn, everything went fine. On The Toast of New Orleans, he, be, he became difficult, more difficult, and I think it was almost exponential through every film he made through his lifetime. Became more and more difficult to work with. What constitutes being difficult? Not showing up, um, not being in condition to work, um, full of ideas about how things should be done, uh, arguments, paranoia. Uh, as I say in the book, you know, I'm convinced after having developed the timeline of Lonza's career, looking at the huge gaps, the periods of time he doesn't work, where, where, where you go over a year and he, he does nothing productive, that he suffered from um, highs and lows, a, a bipolar disorder, manic depression. And all those are very, uh, a full-blown bipolar disorder is a very difficult person to work with. Lanza showed all the signs of that when he was in an extremely euphoric mood, he was full of ideas, um, annoying perhaps even with how many ideas he had. When he was depressed, he simply couldn't work. And when he was in between those two moods at times, uh, he would burst into tears at the slightest criticism. Uh, he began to think of himself in a lot of ways as a second Cecil B. DeMille with his ideas on the set. For instance, because your mind, he didn't want to work with Doretta Morrow. Um, tried to run her off the set repeatedly. It was very difficult in that film. They had to shut it down for five months uh, in order to get the film completed. He had to go off and lose weight and get himself back together. By the time he comes out of Because Your Mind and goes into the student prints, he simply can't work, in spite of uh, recording a very fine soundtrack. Will you tell the story about the student prints, about how that progressed, what problems they had? Well, he started in May uh, of that year with Constantine Clinicos, they, were, they started to show him during, if I go back to the great Caruso, they had allowed Mario a lot of latitude in terms of his hiring uh, Herman Peter Adler as the music director. He didn't want Johnny Green, who had been nominated, I think, for 14 Oscars, uh, was a uh, big favorite of Frank Sinatra's, but he didn't want Johnny Green. He felt he was an overrated band leader. Didn't set well with Johnny Green. They brought him, Herman Peter Adler on, who also indicated, you must hire talent from the Met or this is going to be a second-rate film. They brought all of the stars from the Met in. Because you're mine, by now Louis B. Mayer is gone, <clears throat> and Dory Sherry is on the scene, who, who loathed Lanza. He loathed the concept of a talent who overtook the message of the film. He felt that he was the, the divine force, that the actor was, was unimportant. And with Lanza, I, they were making, you know, uh, just... Uh, serial films almost in order to exploit the voice and, and, and the charisma of this man. He, when, when they did Because Your Mind, he, Lanza had to work with Johnny Green. It did not sell, set well with Lanza. It didn't work. It drove everybody crazy. When they went into the student prints, they allowed Mario to bring Constantine Kalinikos aboard to conduct. 
they did a very fine soundtrack. Uh, I think any tenor who considers, any singer who considers the student prince is against real tough odds with regard to what Mario did on that soundtrack. When it came time for Mario to actually go before the camera, he was simply unable to work. He was disabled. I mean, it, it went week after week. It was, a, it was a huge cast. If you ever watched the film, <clears throat> there are a lot of extras that were waiting. Mario didn't show up. Eventually, MGM uh, sued him in the U.S. District Court in California. Uh, got an injunction against his doing any kind of work. And subsequently, uh, used the soundtrack and made the film with Anne Blythe and Edmund Purdom as a stand-in, mouthing Lonzo's voice. I want to talk a little bit more about his movies, but uh, a little bit about you, first of all. You are from uh, Detroit? I'm in a small town called Gross Point Park, which is right outside of Detroit, Michigan. And you're an attorney? I'm an attorney. What kind of law do you practice? I, by and large, do medical malpractice defense, labor defense issues on medical area, in the medical area, um, hospital issues, bioethics. Uh, I actually work out of two states, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. And your wife is a medical doctor? She's a physician. How long have you been married? I've been married for I've been married 14 years. <laughs> um, my wife, actually, her, her mother and father were physicians, and she actually works in the office they worked in since, uh, I guess, they were there since the 40s. You also mentioned that your sister-in-law is a physician. Is that your wife's sister? My wife, my wife has two sisters who are physicians also, who are married to physicians. So I stand out as a lawyer in this family. And when you sat down to write this book, what was the experience like? How much time did it take? Oh, it took a lot of time, certainly. Uh, the first draft, I think, was, was through in six months. But I had really organized things and, and, and knew where I wanted to go and how I wanted to do it. But I would spend several hours every evening through the week, and I usually managed to get two to two and a half chapters done each week, and then I would go over them again. Uh, they, those were longhand drafts. Then I would sit down at the computer and put them in the computer and refine them. But it was about six months uh, through the first draft, and at that point, you become kind of obsessed with things. When you want a vacation, you take it with you. And it gets to the point where your wife is saying, not that again. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, I never considered it work. At what point did you show it to somebody else? Um, when it was finished, I then decided that I was going to send it off to a publisher. I developed a synopsis of the book, about a 50-page synopsis, because I was told no one reads the whole book. They want to know what you've got going. And I had targeted Amadeus Press, who did classical music. I felt that this was a nameplate with integrity. It was where I wanted a book about Mario Lanza to, to go alongside books by, about Bjorling and Caruso, because that was really the theme that I was trying to uh, impart in this book, which is this was a valid, ta a valid tenant, uh, talent, not someone to just ignore the way he'd been ignored by many people. And what happened when you set off the, uh, who'd you send it to? I sent it to Amadeus Press, and I was delighted that several weeks later they said, we have good news for you, we want to do this book. Um, and then, was crestfallen about three months later when they said, there's been a division on our board. Mario Lanza is remembered as a movie star. He really, although he made a profound impression on many notables of the classical music world, um, he wasn't an operatic star, and we don't feel we can do this book. So now I had told everyone I had a publisher, and look at how easy this is in America, my God. You know, anybody can get published, and I had to then scramble a little bit. But after some scrambling, um, I went back to Amadeus and said, this is a good book about someone you ought to be doing. 
And they uh, indicated, yes, we always wondered what happened with that book, and we regretted passing on it because our publisher recalled as a child uh, being in awe of Mario Lanza, and we want to do the book. There we went. Who did you interview for the book? Interviewed Julius Rudell. Um, I did a lot of work for the Lanza family on ro the royalty issue. In the process of researching the book, I discovered that there had been irregularities in how his estate had been handled. During an interview with Terry Robinson that wasn't going real well, I just kind of changed the subject. I said, Who's Terry Robinson? Terry Robinson was a close friend of Mario's. He became the guardian of the four children after Mario and his wife um, died within six months of one another in 1959 and 1960. Um, I mentioned that Terry, you know, Terry, it looks to me like the former managers are still getting 27.5% of Mario's royalties. And Terry said, Well, they are. I said, Well, that shouldn't be happening. And he said, Why not? I said, I just feel that it's uh, susceptible to legal challenge. Well, the next thing you know, I heard from the family. I'd never intended to contact the Lanza family. I heard from his daughter, Lisa Bregman. We talked about the situation. I did go after the royalties on behalf of the family, which then put me in touch with many of Lanza's former managers, or uh, agents, attorneys, and that sort of thing. So I also, and I also interviewed, uh, let's see, Julius Rudell, I interviewed musicians from the Coke show tapes. I interviewed other musicians who played on his sessions. Uh, spent a lot of time with Al Teitelbaum, his last manager. Um, and then through the royalty thing, as I said, got a real insight into a lot of things through a lot of people. What did you learn from Al Teitelbaum? What did I learn from Al Teitelbaum? Well, Al was, uh, I'm going to say, he's 85 years old. He lives in Ashland, Oregon. Um, sharp as a tack, still with it. Um, in fact, founded the Johnny Rockets pizza chain, or hamburger chain, with his son. Still doing things, building a condo complex when I was out there uh, visiting with him. I think I, uh, I, certainly from Al, I got a much better idea of what happened in Las Vegas when Mario did not go on. Um, I think I got, I, Al is not a musician. He know, his feeling was that uh, if, if Mario sang, he had to hold on to a pipe. You know, Ten feet away, the volume was so incredible. But he's not an opera fan or anything like that. He had no particular opinion of, of, of the man's talent. He uh, certainly Mario, managed Mario when, man, when Mario was very difficult. I got a better insight into the personal um, issues that Mario confronted. And a lot of your pictures in the book are courtesy of Al Teitelbaum. And Teitelbaum had uh, a collection of photos that uh, even the Lanza fans, not, they don't necessarily appear in the book, those were the, the photos that the publisher chose. And in many cases, they're the photos that many people have already seen. But he, uh, Teitelbaum had a collection of photos that even the Lanza fans I talked to were in awe of. They couldn't believe that these things existed. And he generously shared a photo album with me and told me I could use whatever I wanted. You mentioned a little earlier the reaction you've gotten to the book. Can you talk about that a little more among the, the hardcore Lanza fans, what they think of the book, and well, the music fans? I, maybe I'll talk in terms of three different types of reactions. The legitimate reviews I've gotten have all been positive with regard to the objectivity in the book. Um, I have gotten a lot of letters from people from South Philadelphia, um, real Lanza fans who indicate that they admired the voice and find the book to answer many questions they had about Mario. Now I'm aware there's another element out there, which I call the Lanza cultists, who think that I'm the Salman Rushdie of Lanzadom. 
for having put this book out. I don't take that very seriously. I don't pay much attention to that because I really feel, as in the case of Hemingway, who I mentioned earlier, a magnificent uh, craftsman with regard to his short stories. Maybe not such a great novelist at times, and really a mean man in many ways, and a very troubled man. I don't think you can tell his story without dealing with the alcoholism, the depression, Hemingway. With Mario, I don't think you can take a man who dies at 38, whose wife dies at the age of 36, six months later from a drug-alcohol overdose, whose career is so marred by inactivity, difficulties on the sets, lawsuits, and tell me that this was all misunderstandings on the part of Hollywood, that it was a happy, you know, that the true story of the book should be Happy Trails, The Secret Life of Mario Lanza. I don't, uh, ascribe, I don't subscribe to that theory. I'm aware that there are people that, who are upset that uh, this isn't true. I can only say that everything in that book, I can tell you where I got it from. I spent time in the court files that if this isn't true, then the courts have all sorts of uh, fraudulent documents. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to say that that's what I consider to be the majority. The majority of the people admire the voice but understand that there, there was something wrong with regard to the man. I got a call from Denby Richards, who uh, publishes musical opinion in England, and who knew, knew Lanza when he was there appearing in England. He also knew the Hawkhausers. Victor, Victor Hawkhauser is a legendary impresario in, in, in London. And his view was, he says, you have got him down. You have got him down. That was the Lanza I knew. And I'll go with that. Tell me a little bit more about his wife. Uh, you referred to her <clears throat> relationship with Lanza's mother, and, and she died of a drug overdose six months after Lanza died? Correct. First of all, how did they meet when they get married? They met um, when Lanza was on the cast of Winged Victory. They, they filmed that in Hollywood. Unfortunately, Mario's weight was such at that time that he did not play a prominent role. He sang in the chorus. But he met through Bert Hicks, who had been uh, in and around Hollywood, uh, Betty Hicks, who was his sister. And it was almost a love at first sight type thing. They were married, peculiarly enough, on Friday, April the 13th, 1944. And for many years, Betty thought that Mario was going to be a wonderful opera singer. Then they hit Hollywood. So they talked to Tidalbaum, he said he recalled, actually, um, Betty had become friendly with Sylvia Tidalbaum long before Al managed his career. He said they were just two starstruck kids when he met them who uh, bragged that they would never fall prey to the excesses of Hollywood. Betty was uh, probably of average intelligence, um, somewhat temperamental at times, and I think the excesses of Hollywood uh, affected her every bit as much as her husband. In what way? She quickly turned to, well, first of all, they were suddenly at 810 um, North Whittier, drive in Beverly Hills, living in a large home with upstairs and downstairs maids, staff of 10, 12 people. Um, she turned to drugs, then drugs and alcohol in combination. And of course, Mario, with some of the things he did, uh, she became bitter, she became disillusioned. But uh, at the age of 36, she died of a second all alcohol overdose. Blood alcohol level was 2.4. That, and that was not an unusual circumstance um, by everything I've uh, discover, discovered about her. So it wasn't a happy time for her either. And they had four children? Four children. Who were? Damon, Elisa, Colleen, and I've... 
see. Well, maybe I can. Mark. 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 What kind of a father was he? I think he was a doting father, certainly not one who was going to instill any discipline in his children, but a doting father, a loving father. How much they remember of him is, you know, is questionable because they were all, they were nine, seven, five, and three when he died. And if we go back to our own childhood, what do we remember from that period? So they'll can communicate to you that he was one of the most loving, wonderful men in the world. What I've found generally was he, he spoiled them terribly. He was, he, when he was, when his mood was good, he was a doting, um, sensitive, good father. Where are his kids now? Mark died, 1993, I think it was, uh, of a lifestyle-related situation. Colleen died in 1997. She was hit by a car crossing the street. Elisa lives in, in Beverly Hills, California. Damon lives um, in California also. Now, getting back to his movies in uh, Hollywood, what, what was the first one? That Midnight Kiss. How good an actor was he? Well, I don't think he was bad. I think uh, considering, you know, he had a tendency to be a little overly bright-eyed and hammy at times, but I think he had a facility for light comedy, which is really well exploited in uh, The Toast of New Orleans. Um, the great Caruso doesn't call for any great acting, really. Um, because you're mine, he has his moments. Uh, you, then we, we walk into Serenade. It's a very troubled film, I think. Um, and he, he gave it his best shot, but it was a heavy, uh, heavily dramatic role. And the last two films, uh, the Seven Hills of Rome, was not good. But in, for the first time, he again showed a flair for some dramatic comedy. I don't think he was bad, considering the lack of training and just wandering onto a Hollywood set. Did he just walk in and start acting, or did he take lessons? Or how did he learn to act? He just walked in and started acting. And as I said, I don't think it's, it's that bad. Um, Clifford Odette said that Lonza could have been a success in Hollywood as an actor, even if he couldn't have sung. Although I don't think they would have uh, been as tolerant if he didn't have the voice. Are these movies available on videotape? Every one of them, which is a, a, some testimony to Lonza's enduring popularity. Every one of his films is available on video. Um, his royalties continue to be uh, quite surprising 40 years after his death. We can go back to somebody like Catherine Grayson. Not all of her films are available. Not all of Frank Sinatra's films are available on video. Lonza's films are available. Can you recommend one to us? Oh, I, would, I think Great Caruso is <clears throat> one I would uh, recommend to anyone. I think it's a masterpiece of its type. Lonza's at his peak vocally. He's at his peak physically. Um, he's singing with uh, good talent from the Met, although there's not much of a storyline there. The, some of the singing is gloriously exciting, and that's the one I would recommend to anyone. I would conversely tell most people to stay away from the Seven Hills of Rome. Which one was the biggest box office hit? Oh, The Great Crusoe by far. Um, in fact, Lanza's films, his box office attraction was diminishing when he, when he died. If you go to the Great Caruso, it grossed over $5 million its year of release. You come into Serenade, it grossed just over $3 million. You go to Seven Hills of Rome, it grossed $2.4 million, and for the first time, grosses $2.1 million in spite of a surge after his death. So it was on the way down. The Great Caruso was by, by far the, the biggest success of his career. Was he still doing studio recordings when he was a movie star? Oh, yeah. He, well, in the early career, he didn't do that many studio recordings. Uh, he, the bulk of what he did was the Coke show, 
was a radio show, weekly radio show. But he did almost no studio work during that period from 51 to 54. There's not a lot of studio work, comparatively speaking. In 56, there's a re, uh, resurgence. He gets back into the studio and did, did a few things. 57, not much. In 59, he was very active uh, in the studios, recording again the last year of his life. What was the Coke show? Coke show was ca capitalized on his popularity. Of course, radio was a big medium at the time. And it was a weekly show sponsored by Coca-Cola, where Lanza would perform with a guest uh, artist, sometimes, mostly Giselle McKenzie, other people like Debbie Reynolds, uh, and he would generally do three songs. And then the guest artist would do one or two songs, and the conductor, Ray Sinatra, would occasionally do an instrumental. They did this show in a small studio, and then redacted everything and put the voice and the intro introduction in, and then presented it as if it were a uh, live performance, which is one of the problems Mario had. It wasn't live. They had the canned applause and all that sort of thing. And it fed his detractors the, the notion that, see, there's no voice. They're pretending he's live. But I talked to Coke Show musicians who played with everyone, Richard Tucker, um, Jan Pierce, Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, and they were um, very laudatory in terms of what they heard in that studio. Have you heard the tapes? Coke Show tapes? Yeah. Oh, yes. Where do you find them? Well, there are collectors out there. First, there's a lot of the, a lot of the Coke show material is out. In fact, after Lanza, you know, when, when he stopped working from roughly 53 through 56, they continued to release albums as if he were an active artist. It was all Coke show material. A lot of what you're going to find on the CDs is Coke show material. So it, it's out there. And then there's, I think there are several more C CDs coming out with even more Coke show material. Um, RCA has always exploited that material commercially. Um, with great success. One thing about him on the set, I want to read this that you write in here, that Mario Lanza is a strong contender for the title of most truculent, morose, demanding star in the history of Hollywood. I think any time you shut a movie down for five months, as they did on Because You're Mine, when you can't go on, as they did in The Student Prince, uh, during The Great Caruso, he was monstrously difficult to work with. He... Uh, you, you just never knew. As, as Pasternak said, one day at my feet, the next day at my throat. Just to, when he was going to, uh, when he filmed Serenade, they had three different costumes uh, for him, three different sizes. They didn't know how, what, what his weight was going to be like. Uh, and the Caruso said that was a problem. He'd come in on a Monday morning and nothing fit. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it sounds like his weight fluctuates constantly during his life. It, it certainly does, and my view is that when Mario starts to gain weight fast, it's a harbinger of, of very difficult things to come because the, the weight gains generally accompanied depression. When he be, went into a euphoric state, uh, he'd go into Spartan self-discipline regimens, exercise, ridiculously small amounts of food, and drop weight very rapidly. But when things went otherwise, he could soar, which, which caused problems on many movie sets. Um, and I don't, you know, it's an interesting thing. I don't think it would be the problem today that it was then. But that was the era of Clark Gable and Tyrone Power, the, the matinee idol. Uh, no one ever criticized Pavarotti uh, for his weight, yet Lanza never, I would, I would venture to say, weighed what Pavarotti uh, um, has. But in Lanza's time, this was considered to be a great um, source of humor for, in terms of columnists writing about Lanza. But it was never a good sign when Mario gained weight. Never. You refer to a scene, one scene in a movie where he 
walks in the door at 180 pounds, and then the next shot is a close-up of him at 240 pounds. Well, that's what Sam Weiler had said in the American Caruso video, that he weighed Lonza the last day of filming on the set of Because You're Mine. And there's a picture in the book of Lonza bare-chested from Because You're Mine at 159 pounds. And when he walks through the door, it was another scene, and he weighs 240 pounds. And it's a, it's a startling, uh, and Because You're Mine, uh, you know, it looks like there are three actors playing the role. You know, it, 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 the weight just, 240 to 159 on a man who probably stood about five, eight and a half is quite a sh shocking change. Now, uh, getting back to his wife a little bit, it sounds from your book like they had a fairly stormy relationship. Tempestuous, certainly. I mean, when they were in love, they were really in love. And when they were arguing, they were really arguing. Um, and um, certainly uh, the arguments were, were a factor all through the marriage. It, but I think there were two people who desperately loved one another, who desperately needed one another, in spite of the fact they weren't always good for one another. And she died six months? Six months after. After him. What did he die of? Well, there's, that's my book uh, goes into this in great detail. The mafia theory is, is, is quite popular with some folks, that Lucky Luciano had ordered a hit on Mario Lanza because he failed to appear at a charity concert in Naples. And I see no reason to invest so much as a penny's worth of thought in that. Mario Lanza suffered from a legitimate medical condition, phlebitis, had a history of, the, of, of suffering from that condition, was admitted to the Clinic of Alley Julia on September 30th, 1959, with phlebitis, a tachycardic pulse, indicated he was suffering from left-side chest pain. During August, an X-ray had been taken, showing a blockage on the lung, which they um, misdiagnosed as pneumonia. Uh, he was not a compliant patient. He wouldn't stay in bed, which is even today the treatment when you've got a clot that, that could break loose. He bribed staff into getting him alcohol while I was in the hospital. And on August, October 7th, 1959, he left his bed. The a substantial piece of the clot broke loose, blocked his pulmonary ar artery, and caused a myocardial infarction. Now, everybody dies of a heart attack per se. I mean, the heart stops um, beating and all that sort of thing, but he died of a pulmonary embolism. And I see no reason to think otherwise. Where is he buried? He's buried, it's in, I believe it's Century's uh, Holy Cross Cemetery in Century City, California. It's a rather tasteful mausoleum. His mother and father are buried slightly above him. He's next to his wife. Did he re return to Philadelphia very often after he became a big star? No. He was back in Philadelphia um, during the Caruso tour, and that was the last time that I'm aware of that he ever visited the city. Now, you have a, a lot of stories about Mario Lanza difficulties in the book. We also have a couple of stories that uh, I want you to tell. One is about the, the girl who had leukemia. Right, Raffaella Fazzano. I'll try to find a picture <clears throat> of her as you talk. That's a situation where Terry Robinson had answered the phone. Miss um, Josephine Fazzano had asked if um, Mario would, would call her, her daughter because that was her favorite singer. Mario did call uh, Raffaella Eventually flew her to Hollywood to meet him. She spent several days at his home. He had a big party for her, and he continued to call her weekly until she passed away. There are many stories. I mean, we can talk about Lance as, as a difficult person, but he could be equally, he could be one of the most charming men you ever met also, and there are many stories along those lines. As, as is known from everybody I've talked to, he harbored no grudge, no prejudice against any man based on status in life, race, creed. He was wonderful with children. Um, when his mood was good, he could be a very humorous, 
charming person, a very generous host who was always concerned that the best of everything should be on his table. We also had money problems, too. Well, he also he had, he had cash flow problems from time to time. His income was uh, severely depleted from 57, 56 to 59. For 54, 55, 56 in particular, he has an, a huge IRS lien uh, leveled against him, and he's not working. There's no money coming in. He also didn't sign contracts that were conducive to security, financial security. Uh, the kind of money he was paying out of his income was, was ludicrous to, to managers, agents, lawyers, all that sort of thing. Plus, you know, you know, there was no investment program ongoing. Yet I would note that when he died in 1959, he had $300,000 on account with RCA, royalties owing, uh, due and owing, which today is in excess of $3 million in our, in, in our money right now. And his total debts uh, were less than 25000 So there was never, I, when I reviewed the estate file, that was really a, a surprise to me. Mario Lanz was never heavily in debt. Um, he had money coming in. Unfortunately, I think a lot, he was robbed of a lot of opportunities by the managers and whatnot. Not to say that he was financially responsible. I mean, if, he, if there was, was $50,000 to spend, Mario could figure out a way to spend it. You say in here, Mario Lanz's first rule of high finance was simple. If you spent a lot, it meant you were earning a lot. His second rule was equally simple. If you spent more than you earned, it meant you were being underpaid or cheated. That's, uh, let's go back to the MGM contract. The MGM contract was hardly um, a lucrative contract for Mario. Even toward the end, <clears throat> the last two films, he bragged about the amounts of money he was being paid on the sets of um, Seven Hills of Rome for the first time. He never received that amount of money because in both cases, the producers sued him. He, then you had the fact that the managers right off the top were taking 27.5% of his gross. And then after that, their expenses would come out. So Mario, uh, you take, take the European concert tour. Well, my God, he had to stay in the best hotel in every place he went, the Dorchester, the, uh, um, you know, the, the finest hotels going. He had a huge entourage traveling with him. He ordered uh, room service as if he were some sort of potentate uh, you know, that, had, that had to impress the world. And so when the concert tour was finished, there was, there, there was nothing to realize from it. When, by the time he paid his fees, there was nothing there. You use the phrase Lonza leeches in the book. Correct. Who were they? Well, there were a number of, uh, certainly he had a number of employees around that, that, were, that were paid to just be around. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, since some people are still alive, I'll, you know, I, I won't name them, but there were certainly lawyers um, who made a handsome living from Mario, doing not very much in my opinion. Um, there were, he had the songwriter, the publicist, the agent, the lawyer, he had everything going and was paying them all. Um, and when his, when his star started to sink a little bit, they all left him. Would you tell one more Mario Lanza story, and that is the one about uh, the song Arrivederci Roma that was in one of his movies and, uh, and the street singer? Oh, that was a you know, quintessential Mario type situation. He had seen this scruffy little uh, street singer, Luisa Di Mayo, singing, I believe, by in the Piazza Navona. And when it came time for them to do that scene in the movie, he insisted they find that girl who he had been over tipping uh, to beat the band uh, up to that point anyway. And lo and behold, they couldn't find her. And they tried to convince Mario that some, someone else would be better, somebody that, that uh, had, had actually had a voice and you know, a sweet appearance about her. 
Mario insisted no, it had to be her. They finally found her, and her brother, seeing that a big American movie star wanted her for this part, demanded $5,000. They wound up paying her two hundred dollars after a lot of uh, haggling and, and all that sort of thing. And Mario felt that this was a, a genuine slice of Rome, uh, a way to do it. And it worked out. I mean, uh, I think everybody's heard of Rivaderci Roma, for better or for worse. You know. um, it worked out to be a good scene in the film. When you started off to write this book, did you have any idea what direction it was going to take? I mean, in terms of the man? Yeah. No. I didn't. I mean, the reason I started the book was because, as I said already, you know, you've got a career that was erratic. You've got this magnificent legacy. And I wanted to understand why the two um, could coexist, why the career could be, could go as it did, and why the legacy could be so great, why there was so much talent, but in some ways, so much disappointment. And I didn't know where it was going to take me, no. I didn't have a preconceived mindset when I started the book. I didn't just, I just, you know, I think I started the book with the knowledge of most people seem to possess, which is he had a lot of talent, he must have squandered it. I don't think that's a very honorable story because what I found actually is he had a lot of talent and he struggled against tremendous emotional difficulties in bringing that talent before the public. And I think he becomes much more heroic, in my mind, presented as I present him in the book. If you could have interviewed him for this book, what would you have asked him? Oh, boy. I've, you know, I've, some people have asked me would I um, have wanted to know Mario, and I said I certainly would have stood in line to hear him at Royal Albert Hall. Not sure I would want to spend a week with him. Um, I guess I would ask him if I could interview him. What is his? What was his greatest disappointment? Do you think you have an answer for that? Well, I think it it involved many things, but I would like to know. I'd like to have probed him to see if there was an understanding in his own mind of his own part, the part he played in terms of why these things didn't occur. Certainly, the biggest disappointment was he didn't. He never got the recognition he felt he deserved. He never sang opera. That's the biggest, would have been his answer, I'm sure. But I would like to then backtrack it as to, and with him as to why he felt he didn't do it. If you could recommend, you recommended a movie to us earlier. If you could recommend a CD for people to go out and buy, what's Mario Lanza at his best? Well, Mario Lanza at his best. As I said, the first four recordings um, are certainly uh, wonderful recordings. I think the great Caruso and Caruso Favorites CD is a good CD. I think the Non Ti di Me CD is a very good CD. In truth, um, you can't go wrong with many of them. RCA isn't putting out material that is uh, less than commercially viable. They're all very good. Are you going to do your Hemingway book now? Um, no, I still feel that Hemingway, you know, the trouble with Hemingway is if you wrote the best book in the world on him, who would care at this point? Because uh, we're, if you want to get into Hemingway scholarship, the first biography on Hemingway was by Carlos Baker, and it was authorized by the family, <clears throat> or by the widow, Mary Hemingway, and it suffers from that because he had to maintain favor, and he didn't quite write the book that maybe he should have written, and everything that's followed kind of gets patterned after, after it and takes a, a right turn. I don't think it's ever going to get corrected, and I'm not the man. I don't have the time to correct this. <laughs> Do you have another book in the works? I have a, a, fiction, a book of fiction. I don't want to do another celebrity for the time being because I don't want to contend with what you contend with with a celebrity. Uh, people will, and I don't want to, I certainly don't want to go out, out of life as the man who wrote the Mario Lanza biography. I want to have done other things, but I don't want to get into another celebrity right now. This is the book, Mario Lanza, Tenor in Exile. Roland Bessett, thank you very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.